You can subscribe to The Spectator for 12 weeks for only £12 for our print and online editions, plus get six months of digital access free to The Telegraph. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash telegraph. Hello and welcome to The Spectator's Book Club podcast. I'm Sam Leith, the literary editor of The Spectator, and this week I'm very delighted to welcome as my guest Natalie Haynes, the journalist, author, scholar, broadcaster, stand-up comic and all-round jack-of-all-trades, whose new book, and novelist, I should add, whose new book is called Pandora's Jar, Women in the Greek Myths. Natalie, welcome. Hello. Most of us probably start with the impression that in ancient Greece they didn't have much use for women except for, you know, childbearing or turning people to stone. Is this an oversimplification? I mean, marginally, but it's not a particular simplification of the versions of Greek myths that we often grew up with. And I feel really disloyal when I say this because they're my childhood too, you know, and you kind of think, well, I read those Greek myths for children where Theseus is a glorious adventurer and there aren't really any women in his story. I didn't spend my childhood, and I know this will upset you, but I'm sorry I'm pushing through, reading Plutarch, who instead says that, you know, Theseus had, what was it? many marriages which began badly and ended worse and it's like well I I wasn't doing that either but it's interesting that the versions of these stories that we tended to end up with have generally simplified things in favor of men being heroes and women being expendable or marginal or evil and that's not that's not either always or even often the case with our ancient sources. And so what were you trying to do? Because you sort of go through, I think... When you say it in that tone yeah. of voice, it sounds a little bit like I failed. Just FYI. Oh, <laughs> what were you trying to do, Natalie, before it all went catastrophically wrong? What were you trying? What were you trying to do there? <laughs> yes, before it went wrong, what was the original idea of this book? <laughs> was it to find the oldest version of a story? Mm. It's really hard to find a, an original or an oldest, you know, the best we can ever do really is find the earliest version we know about. And that won't be the earliest version there is. Homer isn't the earliest, Hesiod isn't the earliest. And the trouble is that even when we have a story in both of those sources, they don't agree with each other. Sometimes when we have a story twice in one of those sources, Hesiod re Pandora, this means you, they don't agree with each other either. And so it's intensely, frustrating I think that it's it's a really understandable impulse that what we want is to know what's the original version or the right version or the proper version of a story from which all the others deviate but actually of course the reason that there isn't one of those is kind of a wonderful reason which is that these stories are being told by storytellers across the Greek world over you know hundreds of years over multiple generations of time so of course it's the case that if you get the story of Achilles in a part of the world which hasn't got very much to do with his story. They might add in a bit where he comes to their local area. That just makes sense. Why wouldn't it be the case that the Spartans would be proud of Helen? She's Helen of Sparta to them. We might think of her as Helen of Troy. They feel a little bit differently. And so, you know, I think it's, it's kind of a wonderful thing that these stories exist in their sort of messy, contradictory forms, because what it means is they were, they were incredibly popular and that people always wanted to hear it. It's like, tell us more about these Amazon women, tell us more about Pandora, tell us more about Helen or Penelope and how wonderful that these stories are. In fact, really Odysseus, I think, has a pretty, and even he's not, not you know, completely solid, but, you know, the, with the Odyssey is such a, a formative text on our reading of Odysseus that there aren't as many kind of contradictory versions of his story, I don't think, 
but it's really hard to find anybody else who's not it's like well in some versions he's this and in some versions he's that and some versions he's this he's that. and it's just as true for female characters as for male characters seems to me it's a sort of almost archaeological book because you're you're looking at layers of myth absolutely as you say. Strata, yeah but no, for sure even to the to the quite recent ones you know you're you're not averse to dropping in you know Beyonce's version say of, of Medea I'm certainly um, not averse to it and if you think I'm going to get through this book without mentioning Star Trek you are a fool to yourself because you know <laughs> I have very few friends so yeah no I love finding the way that these stories kind of shift through time and sometimes yes it, for sure sometimes I find myself a little bit kind of spirit crushed and they're like really did you have to, you know, focus entirely on the male characters? Did you have to make it less of a story? Did you have to do that? Was that the only option available to you? Their examples are so numerous and they're always a bit dispiriting. But sometimes, you know, somebody does something absolutely extraordinary with a myth that you kind of think you know and you suddenly find that you don't quite know it. And the Beyonce video, music video of Hold Up was just a case in point. It's like, am I just being a massively over-eager classicist reading this text into this video and you kind of look at it and it begins with her in this enormous you know space that's filled with water and she's swimming through it and you're like well you know she's where okay and then she suddenly strides out through these huge doors and it's flanked with columns you're like no that does look like a neoclassical temple that is a genuine one she is wearing saffron yellow which is a a colour that was worn by women of marriageable age, etc., and at festivals in Greece. It, these things are there. It's not just an overeager classicist going, oh, wait. But yeah, when well, you can find the kind of more random ones, like there's an incredible version of Helen of Troy by Agatha Christie, which just fills me with joy, in which a man tries to murder a beautiful woman by means of a wireless, which is playing a particular opera that he thinks she's a fan of and a glass sphere that he's filled with poison gas. And you go, I am here for this. I am absolutely here for this all day long. Yes, Agatha Christie. Yes, I am. I mean, I love finding these ones. Do you, I mean, how did you make your choice of, because we should say to give people a sort of sense of what the, what the scope of the book is. You know, you've got, I don't know, I haven't counted 10 or so. Ten. Is it? 10 sort of figures you know, important female mythical figures who you go through and try and find out what they've meant and how those meanings have shifted, what the originals are and whether they appeared in Star Trek and so forth. How did you choose your 10? And I mean, really randomly. I wish there were a better, I wish there were a better answer than that. But I started with Pandora because I felt like Pandora's Jar would be a good title. And it was such a great story that Pandora gets turned from the sort of er woman to the villainess who destroys men as soon as she gets mapped onto the Eve story, basically because Erasmus makes a typo, you know, that he mistranslates the word pithos, jar, something that's really easy to knock over. They're really narrow at the base. They're really fat at the top. Don't put the world's evils in there. Um, <laughs> and then suddenly he mistranslates it to Pyxis, box. And, and it becomes, you know, within a few decades, she's being shown in paintings, you know, trying to open up a strong box and let, and you're like, wait, what? How did this happen? How did she get so, and he has form, by the way, Erasmus. When we say about somebody who's unusually blunt, that this person likes to call a spade a spade, that's from Erasmus and it's a mistranslation. The word scaffair in Greek means canoe. So what we should say is he likes to call a canoe a canoe. It's just, we don't do that because Erasmus made a mistake. True. So Pandora was the first chapter and then Jocasta because I felt like there was such a, it has always kind of seemed interesting to me that we focus entirely on Oedipus in that story when the tragedy is quite clearly shared. It's really all in the family. So I felt like she deserved, and there was such an incredible, there's a, a huge speech about, I think a 
70 or more lines of hers in a document called the Lille's Desecorus, a papyrus, which was found, well, it was found uh, by French Egyptologists at the end of the 19th, beginning of the 20th century. And they took it back to Lille, but they didn't realize they had it because it was cartonnage packing around a mummy. And then it's, it, it stood there in plain sight for 70 years before anyone thought, is there any writing on this? Oh, it seems to be in Greek. Perhaps it's the voice of a woman. You're like, guys, I swear to you, stop not trying to help. It's really adorable. Now pipe down. So Pandora, then Jocasta, Helen, because how could you not? There's a plug opportunity as well. You wrote a novel about Jocasta, didn't you? I did write a novel yes. about Jocasta. I wrote, I mean, and to be fair, A Thousand Ships has got Helen, Penelope, Clytemnestra. Is that all? I should know this, really. Oh, and Penthesilea, I knew that um, in it. So, yeah, I'd written a lot about the Trojan War and I'd written about Thebes before. So it just made sense, I suppose, to, to use some of the brain space that I'd already set aside for them. Amazon women, so Penthesilea, Hippolyta and Antiope, who are the Amazons we most often hear about in other stories about Theseus or Achilles or whatever, the ones that we tend to focus instead. Eurydice, because I thought it would be interesting to look at her story rather than Orpheus's story, instead of the guy who sadly can't, you know, bring his his true love back from the underworld. It's like, well, what, a, what about the woman who's left behind in the underworld? That's not a great gig either, is it? Can we just talk about her for a minute? Well, you mentioned Caroline Duffy's lovely poem. Oh, it's um, great, isn't it? Oh my goodness, it's so it? good. The, she's the, very the much. Wife. Yeah, where she's just like, oh, want to come back. <laughs> And there are a few paintings. There's one by, is it Emil Nieder? I'm the terrible at German. Sorry, I took Greek instead. So apologies to everyone who has German um, for my pronunciation there. But there's an incredible painting of Orpheus and Eurydice. <laughs> He's sort of striding really pompously. His chest is so puffed out in front of him. And he's sort of striding up from the underworld and he's holding it and she's kind of skulking back under the shadows. And it's, I think what we're aiming for is, oh, she's trying to make sure that if he looks back, he won't see. But it also looks quite a lot like perhaps I can sneak back and he won't notice. She's just sort of skulking around. And Medea, obviously, because I can never resist a woman who, you know, murders children and everybody else. And Penelope, who I, I felt was just as trapped by being the perfect wife as Clytemnestra, also in the book, uh, was trapped by being a... Uh, the worst wife. I thought, well, they're both, neither of those is a very fair description, is it? Worst wife, best wife. So I thought, well, let's look at both of them and see what happens. No, there does in the last, well, I mean, it's sort of 15 or 20 years probably seem to have been a kind of great wave. And I wonder whether you, you know, have a theory as to why it is in sort of attempting to rewrite these myths or reconceive them from a woman's point of view. And I'm thinking of Margaret Atwood's Penelope ad, so you know, the, world, the world's wife, you know, Madeline Miller's Circe, for instance, you know, there's a there's a kind of wave of this going on. What, yeah, I mean, I think probably it's because, firstly, there's a market for it, and there didn't used to be. I think there was a general sense that, you know, if you were going to retell Greek myth, you had to make it male-centric. You only have to look at Mary Renner, who obviously I love, but we're following the story of Theseus. We're not following the story, and someone else, Simonides or whoever. And I think there's been a, a general sense in publishing of, of sort of saying, oh no, we can we can have these books about women. We can make these books. When I wrote Jocasta, it felt like quite a, a dangerous thing to do. It didn't meet its publisher straight away. I had to change publishers over it. And then, you know, obviously with Ships having had a, a really good run this year, I think it's it's become a lot easier, at least for me, to keep doing this. But I think probably there's an element where people don't get to study these subjects at school very much, only tiny numbers of people in the state system, which is 93% of school children at any given time, get to study Latin or Greek. Class Civ, obviously, classical civilization is a, is a bigger draw 
and you know you know my feelings on this classics doesn't belong to an elite it belongs to all of us it's all our history and it matters that we have access to it i'm not saying everyone has to learn latin i'm saying everyone should have the chance to learn about the ancient world if they'd like it and it seems to me that this this market for these these retellings is often coming from people who didn't get to study at a school and and wish they had i'm interested in what you think about the sort of business of, of re i mean one of the things you say early in the book i think is look you know if you go into these myths more closely more carefully look at you know more attentively you can find sort of real human beings you know these women come into relief somehow yeah. as more rounded people but is there a sense sometimes that you feel you run up against the alterity of ancient greece and that you're you're you know, myths, mythological figures are sort of more and less than human beings and they, or, or than ordinary people. And I wonder how much you feel that there's a sort of, there was a Greek sense of psychology that would be recognisable to us. Yeah, it's a really difficult one, isn't it? Because for the Greeks, obviously, a lot of, there's very little language for psychology. And what we would see is, you know, you can see them kind of struggling to shape it in Plato, for example, where they're trying to work out how memory works in the Theaetetus or recollection to be exact. And they're coming up with one after another model. And, and I mean, obviously the most beautiful is the aviary. It's like a birdhouse and all your memories are kind of flying around in this birdhouse in your mind. And then every now and then when you try to recollect one, you can catch the bird. And there are other times when you can't remember someone's name, you can't quite grasp it. And you think, well, yes, there's no language for psychology. And yet the, the metaphor is, is recognizable. We're like, yeah, no, that does sound, it, it is a bit like that. Yeah, sure, okay. And I think that's probably the biggest problem maybe, certainly if you write it as fiction, much less difficult when you're writing it as nonfiction, is that they externalize a lot of what we would internalize. So for us, for example, were you to have sudden and dramatic change in life choices at this point, were you to have what we might call a midlife crisis and you know, walk away from everything you knew, fall in love with somebody half your age, buy a motorbike, disappear into the sunset with them on the back of it, et cetera, et cetera. We would very much see that as an internally motivated thing. We would see it as you know, your fear of encroaching age, your fear of death, blah, blah, blah. We would internalize those things. For the Greeks, a god would have, you know, shot an arrow at you that had made you fall in love with blah blah, blah. And, and it's like well it's everything that we would see as internal for them as external and it's applied on you from without and that does make things harder when you're writing fiction because you want obviously to give characters agency and yet at the same time it is really difficult you can see actually the same in, in, a, in terms of non-fiction of a critical way of writing rather than a necessarily more creative way of writing you can see it in the odyssey when we try to work out who the hell penelope is because so often we're like well i think she's this person but then in this scene where she seems like the, there's a scene where she shows herself off to the suitors and we know that she doesn't like the suitors but she sort of randomly sort of gusses herself up and goes and shows herself off and it's like well so does she want their attention or doesn't she want their attention but of course if you turn back a couple of pages athene puts the idea into her head and it's like well so is this penelope or is it athene who who's who's motivating this and it is genuinely a, an interesting and tricky business and I wonder if that's another reason why novelists like Atwood or Miller are digging around in these stories because they're, they're there for interpretation you have that option because these characters have been on the margins for so long then you can sit there and go wait hang on a second is what are you telling me here is it this or is it this and when you have a character like Penelope who's so enigmatic 
in the Odyssey. You know, literally the first thing we see is that she's veiled and you're like, oh my God, could you, could you, is that a bit on the nose, Homer, would you say? But then, you know, when um, Ovid takes her on. Doesn't she? She's yeah. the first woman in history to be told shut up by a man. And go back to her room. Yeah, by Telemachus, absolutely. But then obviously when Ovid takes on the story in the Heroides, the first of them is Penelope to Ulysses, obviously the Roman name for, for Odysseus. And suddenly she has an interiority because she's writing a letter to her absent husband, which seems completely real. At least it seems completely real to me. You know, as she says to him, when you left, I was a young girl. If you came back right now, I'd be an old woman. You know, that's, that pain sounds, sounds real to me. She's waited 20 years. It's a long time in the ancient world. Life expectancy is short then. I think it's Clytemnestra, you say, is, is there's a very decipherable sort of psychological sense of her. I think so, very much so. Yeah, the, I mean, the idea she might be mourning her daughter. I mean, it's really hard to read her another way if you're reading Aeschylus's version of her in the Agamemnon, which is, is it 458? I think 458 BCE, where he makes her an astonishing character. She's extremely powerful. So the old men of the chorus, they were too old to sail to Troy 10 years ago. So they're really quite old now. They come and say, you know, we come here honoring your power, Clytemnestra. And the word they use is kratos, power, like the same as in democracy. So they're not talking about, you know, charisma or charm, or they're talking about actual ruling clout that she has. And then, you know, their first sequence of song in that play, the very beginning of it, really, after the, the watchfires have been seen, they commemorate Iphigenia's death, the death of Agamemnon and uh, Clytemnestra, whom he sacrificed like an animal, not my words, the words of the chorus in the Agamemnon, also my words, let's not pretend. And he sacrifices her to get a fair wind to, to sail to Troy. And so we're, we're used to being presented with Clytemnestra as the worst wife. And that's certainly how Agamemnon describes her in book 24 of the Odyssey, when he's sort of praising Penelope. And he says, you know, not like my wife. And you know, oh dear, here we go. But then on the other hand he has been murdered by her by that stage i right? mean he has been murdered by her but he did murder her daughter yeah. so and the question that she asks the chorus in in the agamemnon is why is her life worth less than his why are you so exercised by his murder when you didn't care about hers and that's a really valid question because the very fact that their opening set of odes and epos is about iphigenia suggests that they are really upset about it but crucially they don't use her name it's like they're too traumatized by the story, but it's obviously a very raw psychological pain. And by the way, if we look at Euripides and the Iphigenia in Aulis, we find out that Iphigenia wasn't even the first of Clytemnestra's children that Agamemnon killed, because when he first met her, she was married to a man named Tantalus, whom he killed, and then took the baby that she was nursing, her and Tantalus's baby, from her breast and smashed it on the ground. So, you know what, I'm not saying necessarily that he deserved it, but I'm saying if you live in a time before a legal system, that's quite a risky position to take with a woman who's as aggressive as Clytemnestra. Maybe don't murder two of her kids, eh? The first one she let stand, the two was pushing your luck. It really was. But that's one of the sort of, I mean, fascinating things that comes through in this, in aggregate. There are a couple of these sort of, you know, heroic playwrights. I mean, you obviously adore your I do adore Euripides. Um, I bow to no woman in my love of the man. You know, has these these great, you know, Euripides, you say he has great speeches for women. He gives them agency and interiority and he, you know, rounds them out as characters and, you know, gives them moral positions and speeches that seem to complicate and run against this very, you know, patriarchal setup that we, that, you know, frames the whole thing. 
what does it mean that he's doing this to an audience that would have been exclusively Almost certainly men. men. Yeah, it's just, it's one of those things that I still really, really struggle with as a historian, although not as a creative writer, I think. And that is how on earth did Euripides, a man, write the opening monologue of Medea, which was performed by, let's remind ourselves, a man wearing a mask because all roles, male and female, were played by men in Greek theatre, almost certainly at the Dionysia to an audience of just men. And in that speech, which is just astonishing, you know, the, the complexity of thinking behind it is so glorious and the duplicity of it. it it's just remarkable where Medea says, you know, it's so awful being a woman in this world because you have to buy a husband she means like with a dowry and you can't tell whether you're getting a good one or a bad one you know if you buy gold then it's got a mark on it to tell you that it's the good stuff why don't men come with one of those and she's like and you know I can't do this if he can go out and do whatever he wants but we have to stay at home yeah okay they have to fight in battles but I'd rather stand in the front line of battle than give birth to a single child and it's all right for you women of Corinth of the chorus because you've got brothers and fathers who could defend you I don't have those I've had to move to a different country and I don't have any you know you can't work out the customs of a local area unless you've got magic powers and you read it and you go, oh, God, this is, I'm so sympathetic to you. This is so awful what you've been through. Oh, my goodness. This speech was literally read at suffrage meetings just over 100 years ago. That's how extraordinary and visionary it is, this entirely male construct. I mean, it's just so brilliant. But when you look at it critically with a kind of greater awareness of the myth, it's also the most astonishing crock. Did you, Medea? buy him with a dowry. No, you did not. You didn't marry him. You eloped with him, having nicked the golden fleece off of your dad. And yeah, okay, it's all very well to say, oh, you can't work out the customs of an area unless you've got magic powers. You do have magic powers. You've literally got magic powers. You have got magic powers. Oh, haven't got a father or a brother. You don't, that's true. But the reason that you don't is because you nicked the golden fleece off your dad and then literally killed and dismembered your brother and strew his body parts behind you to delay your dad. So yeah, it is true that you don't have a brother, but you did turn him into basically a jigsaw. So that's sort of your fault, isn't it? It's just Oh my God, I just think it's so brilliant. This unbelievable, where you're, we're watching the chorus respond to her one way, we're responding to, we sympathize with her. You know, she is in an awful state. And yet at the same time, she's a piece of work. I just, I think be able to write at those multiple levels. Aeschylus does it, Euripides does it, Sophocles does it. It just, you can see, I can't be more enthusiastic than this, Sam. You've seen me in real life. This is as keen as I ever am about anything. And it's always about Greek playwrights. Yes, no, well, they're a good thing to be enthusiastic about. Do you think we can, I mean, I, I'm curious as to how much we can kind of read the the originals, like with the same headspace as their creators or audiences. I mean, because as you, you know, dryly note through the book, you know, infanticide wasn't such a big deal back then. I mean, that's um, a really difficult example, isn't it? It's a really tough, tough one. You kidnapped them rather yeah. than buying them a box of chocolates. And these things weren't necessarily seen as the grotesque violations of niceness that we would now. It and is you're... really hard. And infanticide is a really good, it's a really good case in point because when we hear of, for example, Jocasta being censured for the fact that Oedipus makes it to adulthood or even more glaring when um, Helen censures Hecabe in the Trojan women, uh, Hecuba to give her a Roman name, and she says, you know, how can you blame me for the war? You're the one who didn't kill Paris when he was a baby. And for a modern audience, it's like, wait, what now? 
you're, you're blaming her for what now? For not killing her child? But to be fair, if you were performing this at a time when people routinely wouldn't have kept children that they perceived to be less valuable, and yes, I'm afraid that was often girls, but also, you know, weak boys, as they perceived, children who had any kind of physical disability were, I would imagine, at enormous peril. The Spartans famously used to lob Dumb them off a rock. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's like, well, how, how do you read how do you read that think all you can really do i think is is think about what it you know think about the world the context in which they were first performed and try to think in those terms but certainly as a novelist it's harder because the hardest thing is color and food those are the two worst things if you try to write novels set in the bronze age you're like what freaking color is the yellow thing i can't compare it to this it doesn't exist yet i can't compare it to this it doesn't exist yet i can't compare you know i can't just call it saffron every single time and sometimes you know you have to make a choice that you you have to kind of sacrifice a little bit of historicity for it because otherwise the monotony would get too much i think and giving them food to eat you're like well wait when is tomatoes a thousand years later and when you realize that you're trying to you know give people food to eat and you're looking at things and you're like well you know that this aristotle writes you know he writes about this he writes about it. and you're like yeah but that's 900 it's like it's literally like putting an iphone in the bayer tapestry that's how far apart they are you're like, oh damn it <laughs> oh. <laughs> okay <laughs> back to the drawing board and a lot of the time in this you, you are talking about not just you know bronze age texts but texts that refer to now lost bronze age texts i mean you've got pseudo apologetics well when you say it like that you make me sound like a nerd sam yeah. <laughs> yes i i don't know where that could, impression could come <laughs> but you know pseudo apollodorus has a, has an important role in your book he does uh, i love those kind of crazy what is the best way to describe him? He's like a sort of mad collector of earlier myth, I suppose. And so he is an amazing source if what you're hoping to track down is the contents of, you know, once upon a time, for example, the Iliad and the Odyssey were part of a huge epic cycle, which told the whole story of the Trojan War. You know, we think of the Iliad as the great Trojan War narrative, but it covers two months in the final year of the war. It is completely legitimate on reading the Iliad to go, Sorry, how did we get to here? You know, what happened in the last nine years of the war? What, how, how did the war start? How did this happen? And there were once poems that told that, that story. You know, there was once a poem called the Cypria that went before it. There was a poem that came immediately after it called the Ethiopis, which told the story of Penthesilea, the great warrior queen who fought at Troy. Well, I was going to say, I didn't know there were Amazons in the Trojan War until I read your uh, there absolutely were. You remember that beautiful pot that they used to illustrate the Troy exhibition at the British Museum at the end of last year and the start of this year? That's Achilles taking on Penthesilea. So, yes, there are. The Amazons come and fight for Troy. But in order to find out about that, you're not going to find them in the Iliad because it ends before that bit of the story happens. You're going to have to track it down in Quintus Manaeus's Fall of Troy, which I admit is not a, an equally read text, but it should be because it's really wonderful. We read, you know, as you say, deep anxiety into the treatment of women who have agency in that you know you say the ancient greek standard thing for aristocratic women they were terrified of their wives getting impregnated by somebody else so their wives were constantly essentially locked up at home yes and you know women in power women speaking women out in the world women even fighting were you know i mean were the greeks treating this as something that was excitingly transgressive do you think or was it a kind of warning or yeah, I think so, because if you look at some of the actually transgressive women, Clytemnestra is the obvious example in the Aeschylus Agamemnon, it doesn't seem like it was performed that frequently after its first performance, that people genuinely were 
oh my goodness, this is terribly shocking. And it's quite hard to find vase paintings that, that show scenes from it, which is a, not a perfect measure of how popular a play is. But you know, often a good one. We can find there's an incredible crater which is held in the Museum of Fine Arts in Boston, I think, which shows a sort of ver a variant version. And it's almost the same age, but we don't know which one comes first. It's, it's maybe a little bit earlier, but that shows Aegisthus, Clytemnestra's boyfriend, doing the killing. And she's just sort of standing there with an axe, like an axe-wielding cheerleader. Whereas obviously in the Aeschylus version, she does the, the murdering and, and Aegisthus is, if anything, the axe-wielding cheerleader. But we don't have very many examples of that on other vases. So it looks like it probably wasn't performed that often. Whereas conversely, if we look at a play like Alcestis, Euripides' play Alcestis, which is largely forgotten now. I can't remember the last time I saw it. I think it was at the Soho Theatre, but it must be 20 years ago. But that was obviously really popular because it's performed for the first time before Plato was born. And yet in his symposium, the dinner party dialogue where Socrates and Aristophanes and Phaedrus and various other people are discussing the nature of love. Phaedrus says, you know, that Orpheus was rubbish at being the great lover because he didn't love enough to die. He only loved enough to go to the underworld as a living person. Whereas Alcestis was perfectly happy to, to die for her love. So she's the better one. And the version of the argument he gives there is so close to the Euripides, that he must have seen it or read it, but it seems most likely seen it reperformed because he can't possibly have seen it when it was first performed, it's before he was born. So, you know, some of them obviously stayed in currency, these, you know, good wives or bad wives. Right, like the mousetrap or something. I, I mean, I presume that must have been true of something like Medea. Medea, when it was first performed, came third in competition out of three at the Dionysia, but within a year was one of the most performed plays in Greece. So I tend to assume its reception must have been much like Alfred Hitchcock's Psycho, that people were like, oh my God, I'm so shocked. And then 20 minutes later, we're like, can I see it again? It's, you know, it's like, this would surely explain why it was suddenly, now you can say, it's really easy to say now why it's so frequently performed in modern 21st century theatre. It's because it's a fantastic role for women and there aren't very many of them around in the canon, but it's, it's much harder to explain that in the ancient Greek world, because obviously all the parts played by men makes no difference. Yeah, you say also that, I mean, one kind of fascinating thing is that Medusa, the stories that comes down to us through the, at least, you know, late Victorian, early 20th century retellings, you know, is a very sort of fixed. I mean, I think you, you use the Harryhausen Clash of the Titans. I do. I'm so lowbrow, Sam, you know it. No, no, no. I think you and I are exact contemporaries. So that's the version I grew up with as well. But you say that, in fact, that whole kind of now canonical version of it was sort of a retconning. We're kind of retrofitted to explain these Gorgonaea. The yeah, yes. absolutely. Because it's one of those really intriguing things that Gorgon heads exist before Gorgons. And that doesn't seem like it should be okay, but it is nonetheless the case. So we see examples, well, all over the Greek world on temples and things like that. These just a Gorgon head. There's a Agamemnon in the Iliad has a Gorgon head on his shield. So what you get is this little round, hey, I can show you mine. Oh, I have one. There was a gift a few years ago. It's terracotta. Can you see that the little gorgon head? For listeners to this podcast, it's very pretty. And Thanks very much. Terracotta. Uh, she's my little apotropaic gorgon. So it looks like gorgons. I mean, they perhaps owe something to Humbaba from Mesopotamia. But generally, when we see them, it looks like they are being used in, in an apotropaic context. So they are meant to protect us from. Well, that's an excellent question. I would guess probably wild animals is the answer because she has the snakes for hair. But when you look at, certainly you can see on my one, it looks like a lion's mane as well because it's a round figure and the snakes are all sort of curled around. Often they're shown with huge tusks, so wild boar. And you have to think if you're sleeping in the ancient Greek world, 
these things must have been a lot riskier. Snakes, lions, boar, these can all kill you. So this is a legitimate thing to be scared of and having an apotropaic device that can protect you, you can see the appeal, right? Yeah. And yeah, they also have huge wide mouths, the earliest, lots of the earliest Gorgonaea, and they're associated with making a, a sort of direful sound. So some people have said they protected us against- Are oh, they definitely female, the original Gorgonaea? I mean, you're yeah, sure about that. Seem to be. Tell, I mean, it is really hard to tell. It's, it is really hard to tell because they've only got heads. So it, it is really difficult to make a conclusive call. Is that the sort of scholarly consensus that these- it Certainly seems to be, but yeah. yes. Um, I, perhaps they are pre-gendered pre and that seems reasonable to me, but I would see, I mean, it's the fact that when they become Gorgons, they are female, but that's not unusual with monsters in Greek myth. They often, monsters are often, not always, but often female. And also it's no surprise, I, it's just really hard to look at it and think that the Greeks didn't see all these heads around and think they needed bodies to go with them. And if you've got a monster head, you need a monster body. And so they get wings and you know they, uh, they look more and more kind of strange and, and hybrid. And then of course, they're trebled because you almost always get triple, triple goddess, not completely, but like the, the Furies three, the Graii, the sisters who share an eye and a tooth, three you know they love they love threes for women it's one of their yeah. weird things it must be their lucky number a and so you end up with three gorgons and then of course you need to explain how the gorgon heads the gorgonea get separated from the gorgon body so that's when you invent perseus it's not the case that perseus exists in this hero narrative and then gorgons are invented to give him a monster to go and slay it really is the other way around there are gorgon heads and then there are gorgons and then there's perseus yeah and, and it, it seems to be a kind of narrow competition when looking for the real monsters here, whether Perseus or Theseus is worst. I get the sense that Theseus nudges ahead. I think he just about nudges ahead for me. Yeah, because he is, I mean, it's indisputably the case. If you read him in Plutarch, he is a serial killer of women. Um, you know, Plutarch lists the women that he kills, some of whom he's related to, some of whom he isn't. And, you know, some of them, he just, you know, he kills their fathers and then rapes the daughters. Some of them he has a relationship with before he murders that. He is so hateful. It's absolutely, I, I was really struggling in this book. Not, not just, I, there's no way I can ever put him in fiction because I will just spend my entire time trying not to reach through the pages and punch him in the face. I just, he is just poisonous. And obviously his um, most egregious dubious behavior in this book is the abduction of Helen of Sparta, who'll become eventually Helen of Troy when she's aged either seven or 10. And you can tell something's bad when even ancient authors are squeamish about it because their ideas of what's fine and not fine in the world of sexual violence are very different from ours. When even they are going, oh, it's seven, can we round up to 10? You know you have got problems. But he abducts Helen and starts a war over it. You know, her brothers, Castor and Polyduces, we often call them Castor and Pollux, uh, invade Athens to try and get her back. But in some versions of her story, she's already had his daughter by the time she's reclaimed. So there is absolutely no going around that when you look at the ancient sources they're showing us a man in his 50s who rapes a young girl and they are squeamish i mean adam so for madeline miller when i spoke to her about this said she she was sort of fairly free in saying you know ancient greece was what you'd call a rape culture do you think that's right i mean yeah. at the risk of alienating spectator listeners by sounding too much like the vocabulary of the woke 
Do you think rape culture is a useful term to apply to this, these attitudes to sexual violence? Well, you wrote a super interesting piece on the phenomenon of woke the other day, which I read and thought, wonderful, and I meant to mail you and tell you, and I'm sorry I forgot that. Very funny. But, of course, it's the case that it's a society which doesn't think about things like consent in a way that we would. I would hope think about things like consent. And so it's absolutely unavoidable. To deny it doesn't do any of us a service. You know, It doesn't make us understand the Greeks any better, and it doesn't make us think about the world in a more critical way. I think probably if you're going to write fiction set in that world, you have to, and it's a struggle to try and, I, I mean, for me, it was a bigger struggle in ships because there are so many women in that book. And obviously it's a, a largest percentage of them are, are the Trojan survivors of the war. And they find themselves in a position of, of entering sexual slavery. They are trafficked from Troy. You know, when you destroy a city in the ancient world, the Athenians do it and the Romans will do it. It's absolutely comprehensive. You know, you kill all the men and you enslave all the women and, and the children. And so you destroy not just the place, but the language and the, you know, and, and you kind of, when you see it in those terms. There's a word you use, a Greek word that Agamemnon uses early in the, the in Agamemnon, I think, isn't there? That where he say, says, you know, it's like he's ground. Ground it to dust beneath his feet. Yeah. I think that's probably not a mindset that we would find sympathetic at all today. But the thing to bear in mind, of course, and I know I don't need to tell you it, is that these are questions that are being asked at the time by, for example, Thucydides in the Melian dialogue, where it's the great debate about nomos versus phusis, natural law, phusis versus man-made law, nomos. And, you know, the Athenians decide they're going to crush the Melians. And the Melians say, well, you know, but you you can't do that because that would be a terrible thing to do. You know, what if you were ever in a position where then your enemies would have this incredible, you know, and, and so these questions of how you treat your conquered enemies, it's not anachronistic to ask them. They were being asked in the fifth century. Well, that's it. I mean, I'm always struck by some sort of Tom Holland's thesis. He said the, there's this huge gap, if I'm understanding him rightly, a sort of total disjunction between the ancient world and the modern world and that what comes in between is Christianity and the Sermon on the Mount. And he said that you know, the Greeks and Romans, as he sees it, were just unimaginably cruel in a way that we can't even really understand now. You see it as more of a, a continuum. I do see it as more of a continuum, but then I'm not a religious person. So for me, there isn't a point when salvation occurs and it doesn't look markedly worse to me. Looking at the... Tom, I think he sees it as a sort of paradigm shift in the culture rather than as a salvation. Right. I haven't read it, I'm afraid. So I, oh, right. I just don't know. But I would find it a little bit difficult to suggest that, that the wars fought in the name of Christianity were markedly different from, I mean, I always think this vaguely about war when people say, I mean, obviously I'm in favor of uh, there being the existence of things like war crimes and the Hague, but I do find myself occasionally wondering when the good war was fought, where everyone obeyed the rules and didn't do anything you know, beyond them. It's like, just give me the ballpark good war and then I'll have it in my mind for later. I'm pretty sure all wars have always been awful all the time. In the case of the people who, who lose everything, obviously losing a war is always the thing, but I think winning a war doesn't ever look like it's been masses of fun either. You know, we always have this idea of how brilliant it is to be victorious, but you only have to look at the terrible damage wrought on soldiers who fought in Vietnam, for example, to see that you know, winning isn't isn't so great either. If, if you come home with your life, that's not necessarily a victory, even if you feel like you're in better nick than the person who you buried. I mean, maybe we're, we're running slightly out of time, but I just wanted to ask what your sense of how they've been retold. I mean, you, you know, you've excavated a lot of these 
great mess. And you've you've said that you know in a lot of these quite early versions of these stories, we're getting much more complexity and approach. You know, much more of a focus on the women's voices and and the, the ones we've grown up with, the versions of the stories that are fifty or a hundred or one hundred and fifty years old. You know, or going back to Marlowe. You know, the Silent Helen of Troy have actually kind of occluded the women and have put the focus on the men. And, you know, Theseus is just dandy in the... Roger uh, Lanceman Green or whoever. Yeah, the Lanceman yeah. Green version. You know, why, why do you think that's happened? I mean, one, you know, the sort of Whiggish version of, of history should, should sort of tell us, you know, well, the Greeks were much more misogynistic than the Victorians and so forth. I mean, what? I wonder if not? they're just different kind of categories of misogyny. I mean, for the Greeks, obviously, that their misogyny is really front and centre. They have this incredibly patriarchal society. You know, women have, upper-class women have this totally cloistered existence. The absolute paranoid fear that someone else might screw your wife and, you know, you might end up bringing up someone else's child. It runs through all of Athenian lawmaking and thinking and sometimes theatre. Look at the Sophocles, Oedipus Tyrannus and so on. And I, I think it's probably the case, although by no means is Victorian England my specialty, I think it's probably the case that there's less anxiety like that by then. But there's just a kind of different category, I guess, of, of misogyny, which basically says we're sort of only interested in men. We're just sort of interested in men because men go off and do things and women don't really do anything. We're not afraid of them like the Greeks might have been. We're not afraid of what might happen. But, you know, they're just at home, aren't they? So, you know, by the time you get to versions which are written by, like you say, by Roger Lanson Green or before him by Nathaniel Hawthorne, then the women have become infantilized or marginalized or all of the above. And I genuinely don't think for the most part that it came from a place of, of malice. I think it came from a sort of casual, unthinking misogyny that was just reflective of a, a period which didn't really value women other than, you know, very exceptional and occasional ones. I think I, the point the point where I probably make this more forcefully in the book is in the Amazons chapter on the translation of Zerster, the war belt that Hercules, Heracles is so desperate to acquire from Hippolyta. And I don't remember reading a translation of any version of this story until I was well into adulthood, which ever described it as anything other than a girdle. And, you know, OK, a girdle can be a sort of genderless belt like in Midsummer Night's Dream, but it's much more often associated with women than with men. And yet the word in Greek, zosta, isn't the Greek word for a women's belt is zona, which is never used to describe what Hippolyta has and Heracles wants. It's always zosta, a war belt, the exact same word that Homer uses to describe the war belts worn by male heroes in the Iliad. And it's like, I don't honestly think that all those translators, all those retellers of Greek myth sat there and thought, how can I reduce Hippolyta and make her less heroic? I think they thought, well, my wife would never wear a war belt. I'd better write that. I, I, it's kind of, I kind of have a sort of, I know it's condescending and I'm sorry for it, but I, I kind of think, oh, well, they didn't, didn't mean it. <laughs> you know, I, I think it was a genuine failure to imagine that things their wives did in the 19th century couldn't be, you know, it's, it's like, well, dude, you know, the, the perfect illustration in the non-Greek is the Roman poet, love poet Sulpicia. And when her poems were discovered, I mean, bless them, but classical scholars, not only, but mainly men, said, well, these can't possibly be by a woman, they're too good. And then once somebody has sort of quietly explained to them that some women were quite good writers, they went, well, they definitely can't be by a woman because they're too filthy. And you're like, mate, I, I just don't know what to say to you. You know that Catullus had lesbia, right? She definitely knew how to do some of this stuff and she could probably spell it as well. So I, I you know, what are you, that's what you're up against. I genuinely don't think it comes from a place of deliberately trying to 
to rework women, but I think it sometimes comes from a slight failure to imagine women outside of their own quite limited, sometimes social circle, let's say. Well, this book with women from the Bronze Age helps me to imagine them outside my own social circle, so I'm very grateful for it. Natalie Haynes, thank you very much for your time. You can subscribe to The Spectator for 12 weeks for only £12 for our print and online editions, plus get six months of digital access free to The Telegraph. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash telegraph.